Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Working Wellbeings podcast. In this episode, we've got a really amazing chat with Dr. Jackie Wilmshurst. From her career in the military and even training to be a helicopter pilot to life as a global head of wellbeing at TikTok, Jackie shares with us her story over that period. I first met Jackie when she was actually working at the BBC, and we've stayed in contact ever since. We even started a business together a few years ago, helping companies to manage the psychological health and safety of their people. There's a lot in this episode, especially about the need to think strategically and try not to get bogged down in the detail, especially if you're implementing well-being interventions on a global scale. So, over to the podcast. Hey Jackie, thank you so much for agreeing to be um, on the podcast, really appreciate it. We obviously, we've worked with one another for a number of years now and I've always wanted the opportunity to be able to speak to you um, and interview you about your role um, in this space. So how about we just jump straight into it and you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit more about yourself and also a bit more about, well I guess start from the beginning, what's your background and what brought you towards the world of well-being at work? That's a big question to start. So yeah, hi everyone. I am Jackie Wildsurst and I'm, um, so amongst many things, I am a chartered psychologist, uh, but with a research and teaching background as opposed to clinical. So I like to bring what the sort of science of psychology can that often gets left in journals for people in universities to read and figure out what could be applied particularly in workplaces um, to help everyone because there's so much good information already out there. But in terms of my journey, that has been quite, um, I say a roller coaster, but also just lots of different directions in that I did study psychology at university originally. Um, but my first sort of main career was actually in the British Army as an officer. So I went to the military academy at Sandhurst, did the leadership training, and then I spent six years serving full time. So I had 15 years service, but the rest of it was reserves alongside my main job, but still pretty active in what I was doing. And my primary job in the army was actually learning and development. So that's very relevant here because learning and development is sort of teaching, especially has woven, has been probably one of the most common threads through everything I've done. Um, that said, though, I did have operational service in Northern Ireland in the Balkans back when NATO were in Bosnia and um, actually also when the Kosovo conflict um, reared up. So it feels like a long time ago now. Um, that obviously says a lot about well-being at work in a slightly more um, unusual types and quite extreme kind of environments. Um, so the Estes are, I also trained as a helicopter pilot, which is relevant more sometimes than it might seem in terms of understanding myself under stress, understanding resilience, understanding my limits, some of which were further than I thought, some of which were not where I thought. And um, but yeah, so once I'd served that PFC Short Service Commission, I left the military full-time back in 2003, but stayed part-time until 2009. And I went back to university and did a master's in psychology and then a PhD in psychology, particularly looking at resilience and risk, initially in the context of um, natural hazards, actually. So communities living at, at risk, repeated risk often of um, particularly weather, initially weather-related events. But again, looking at what makes communities and individuals resilient, how do people learn from experiences? How do those experiences affect them? And um, also how people understand risk. So plus is of perceiving risk, but also making sense and acting on risk. So a lot of it was drawing on health psychology, also social psychology, some sort of cognitive decision-making. 
Um, and again, I had a number of years similar to the army. I did six years as an academic, um, and it was brilliant. And I got to do field work all over the world. I worked in Colombia on volcanic risk, or the hurricane risk, I chased tornadoes. I learned so many things about so many different kinds of people. Um, but academic research in the end wasn't going to be right in long term because I wanted to be more in the world solving problems in a faster time frame. Academic research is by necessity incredibly sort of slow and systematic. And as I mentioned, when we were talking earlier, that a lot of the really good research that gets done out there disappears off into academic publications, never to be seen again. And I felt that that experience added on to the experience of having been in the army. I wanted to bring it together really. So when I left being an academic, I went back initially into learning and development, but particularly helping people who whose job roles take them into high risk environments. So journalists, humanitarian aid workers, and initially, I was working more on the physical safety side, helping people understand, because of my military background, understanding some of the risks of being in, for example, conflict environments, but also post uh, the aftermath of natural disasters. So I was doing a lot of training delivery, um, but part of doing that was um, that more and more the mental health side and the psychological risk side was getting talked about. So I'll talk, pause on that because that's a huge topic in its own right. but. That kind of potted history of learning and development, military research and psychology, I wanted to come back and, and bring it into workplaces. Cool. And then you held a number of roles, didn't you, within some organizations as a your wellbeing manager or leader or how yeah, did you, so how do you, it's interesting, how do you define that role? Yeah, good Those question. roles. Initially, the roles I went back into employed were actually learning and development roles, but because of the subject matter expertise I had, I was getting pulled and stretched into this well-being when it wasn't as much of a thing as it is now. Um, it was my freelance work that, so, so really what happened was I was training journalists as a consultant for what's called hostile environment training. And um, one of the clients I was training uh, alongside humanitarian aid workers as well, actually, it was the BBC. And it the way my head worked is it didn't make a great deal of sense to me for us to spend the best part of a week helping these journalists spot risks, manage risks, and ideally not to get hurt, albeit with first aid training and understanding how to get help if the worst happens, but huge emphasis on avoidance of harm. And then we were doing an hour on PTSD awareness and essentially telling people how to spot that they've been broken and how to get help to put themselves back together. And it's a great place to start in terms of that it didn't used to get talked about at all, so I'm not knocking it. Um, but back then, I suppose because of my background being, if it's because it's not clinical, I wasn't coming from the mindset of treating harm. I was coming from the mindset of risk. So I kind of embarked on saying, well, how, how could we look at this differently? How could we be taking a more health and safety and more risk-based approach to psychological harm, which isn't the same, but I felt like we could do better. I got a real sort of feeling like there's, there's something missing here. And as a result, some of the training I did there, I was invited to um, apply to be the mental health and industry of the BBC initially for a maternity for a year, but it turned into two years. And when I went in there, although my remit was mental health overall, the focus I had was on spotting parts across more roles or jobs across the whole BBC um, that perhaps just, you know, could be causing psychological harm, but I hadn't really thought about it properly yet in those ways. Mm. So I sort of did in-house research as well as yeah. prep strategy development and program development. What part of the what part of the organization was that part of? 
So was that being done already or was that a new role? Well, it, so it was new in that there had only been someone in for a year mm. who then went on, on maternity. Um, and I thought very sensibly, I'd like to think a little bit because we'd been delivering the training already for a, a while before that role be, was designed is that it was put into the safety department mm. rather than HR. There are a lot of pros and cons to be discussed there. It's not a, a black and white thing, but in that particular case, it was useful for the role to be seen as a sort of safety and risk role. Got you, got you. And then what did you do after that? So the BBC, how long were you there? Two years. Mm-hmm. And then I, that, as I said, the contract was extended, but it was only on a temporary. So I went back to self-employment. And um, again, I would be open to doing some learning and development, but I got off the back of that role requested that I would do more and more training design and delivery around well-being, particularly mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was asked to go and work at Facebook, now Meta in Dublin, as a global resilience program manager, as it was called then, um, to go in and look at strategy. And that was particularly around looking after content moderators. And the link and the reason I was approached was that one of the big things I'd be working on the BBC was that where we'd had this strong, understandably strong emphasis on journalists going off to war zones because it, it is increasingly, we know that journalists are having to go into all kinds of environments to try to bring us the stories back. Um, quite right that we understand that that can be psychologically traumatic as well and traumatic, but actually also just deeply stressful being away from home in unpredictable environments, living in not necessarily very comfortable um context so there's all of that was right but we got pointed out while i was doing that training before i ever went into the bbc that we've got these teams called the user generated content teams mm-hmm. who were sitting in relative physical safety in london down in the newsroom but who would be receiving pretty much all the smartphone footage of anyone doing anything anywhere in the world that they feel was newsworthy and there are ways in which people can just send in photographs and videos and this would be the team that would be receiving everything um, and they would then be shifting through working out what is newsworthy in terms of story. These are all journalists. So it's what's newsworthy, but it's also what's appropriate for viewers to see. So they would be screening everything basically and um, what they were having to look at and hear um, could across a really, really unpredictable range of topics could be really harrowing for them. Mm-hmm. So that initially got me into this idea of sort of vicarious trauma risk when people are not out in environments where they're doing physical risk assessments and that the sort of the trauma psychological could get brought in. Mm-hmm. So um, it, they've just been overlooked basically. So I did quite a big piece of work with them. Cool. And that led Facebook to um, see that I had got expertise or experience in what is pretty much a new field, recognizing that all this huge workforce of content moderation is expanding all the time. Um, if we if we're asking them to keep these platforms safe for us as users, it's only right we, you know, have a heart about some of the stuff they're exposed to. It's on it. Keeping that clean. Got yeah. And again, so I'm getting quite detailed about the roles, but it's because I, I think a lot of our audience will want to hear about where that was in that business. So that was that a safety role as well, or was no, that more HR now? Tended to be H under the umbrella of HR. Every company's different, but in that industry, sort of social media, but expanding into tech, but also the sort of customer service companies that have often come in to do 
to take on a lot of the content moderation work on behalf of the names that we would all know. So I've worked quite expansively across that section and a lot of those companies are well-placed to take on content moderation where they come from a customer service, often call center background. So traditionally anything around wellbeing and resilience would have sat within HR. Sometimes there are cultural differences at play there and what I mean by that, and, and legal actually, and what I mean by that is many of these companies in the early days were US, have been US-led even as they globalized. And uh, this, the often called wellness, but the, the, the idea of looking after people's well-being at work would have been seen as an HR function and usually led by teams who look at benefits, employee benefits. Um, that's been changing a lot in the last few years, but that's traditionally where those thoughts have come from. Whereas at the BBC, there had already for you know a long time been a department who would look at high risk sort of assignments and projects from a risk perspective. So the infrastructure inside the company was there to look at risk. So it's much easier to then bring psychological risk in than to try and create scratch. Got it. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because we're always looking at like roots into the industry, right? And I think helicopter pilot to <laughs> HR professional of, of sorts um, along the way is a pretty kind of varied route into that. It just shows, right? It just shows you can come from all different angles, but um, work for some of these organizations. And yeah, so you work for Facebook. You also work for TikTok as well. So I'm assuming you're disappointed this interview now is not being done in a 30-second video where we're just dancing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Um, not. sorry, go on. You could do it by dance. <laughs> yeah, good. Interpretive dance. Um, yes. So TikTok. That was that was actually relatively recent during the pandemic. Again, um, I had gone in um, at Facebook and I said I had worked with other companies as well, looking at how to set up strategies that would focus on, um, you know, looking at the job roles themselves in these companies rather than the more generic well-being like having good benefits, appreciating everyone's got health, therefore everyone can have health problems, both physical and mental. So coming from that very general feeling that workplaces have a duty of care that was always felt to be more of a moral, it's the right thing to do, it's good for business because it keeps people in their jobs. They're all those good things that we know about. But then unlike the physical wellbeing world where health and safety is an industry is well established, that if people are in jobs where there's known to be exposure to anything hazardous. And that's why there are all these pillars within health and safety of working from high, handling hazardous substances, you know, going on lots of road trips, working overseas. So, and we've got experts in not just health and safety broadly, you've got people who know how to set up, you know, risk systems. Um, but there are all these experts who say, okay, if it's hazardous substances, we understand what exposure to these, I don't know, anything from noxious gases to you know, things that can burn the skin, but we we know or sharp objects, any of these things. There are experts who know how to meaningfully risk assess that and say, if people are by necessity in their job role, having to be exposed to things that the most of us would rather not be, mm. what's their PPE? What does it look like? And physically it's a little, I wouldn't say it's black and white because that does a disservice to all those people who work really hard to manage those risks. It's not, it's not easy, but it's sometimes at least more visible, more tangible that you physically might be putting on clothing that's PPE, physically gloves or your hard hats or your harnesses, but also the training. Like how do you do a job that has inherent risks in it and do it with all the awareness that you need how to keep yourselves and, and each other safe? So that that kind of has come in and I have, <laughs> you might not have to edit this bit now because I was in the middle of answering a question. I forgot what the original question was. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, the original question. Well, no. So I'd I'd say one thing. I've heard you say that. Um, I heard I've heard you say that um, phrase before, psychological PPE, and I really like it. And uh, do you know what? I find it really interesting. So your route into this, correct me if I'm wrong, but has been more from the kind of world of risk, right? And when you talk about well-being, and particularly that word you mentioned it, wellness, before there is a there is a risk that it can um, pardon the pun, um, it can be seen as a bit soft and fluffy, and all from the kind of benefits side. And um, you're very much you've you've got to focus more so on psychological health and safety, right? Uh, yes, and that. So is- I'm guessing you think those two worlds aren't completely unrelated to one another. No, they should be far more overlapping. And um, and the reason I draw on the sort of physical side is because it, it's ahead. Even though I know there's a lot of work to do, where you know physical health and safety in more, some industries more than others is well established. You know, your construction industry, others where. Um, it's everything it's it's legally it's a lot to legal compliance it's an absolute like there's no option not to have all the risk assessments done and all the control measures in place all the appropriate ppe you know we've got the law posts so that's a legal imperative as well as being obviously sensible for business sensible for reputation so the whole risk management piece um but yeah in in industries where that for one there isn't the physical you always have health and safety right because if you have i mean there's a whole thing about remote working to come on to, but when you have premises in which people show up at work, there are always going to be physical risks, even if they aren't particularly job role related. So that world's certainly better known. And some of these new organizations, you know, and the world of social media coming out of small tech startups, you know, it's, they, they get huge and there hasn't been that infrastructure so much. So you're right, the, the, the sort of wellness piece comes more from the mindset of, Looking after employees is the right thing to do. Everybody can have mental health problems at some point for different reasons. Um, life can detract from our health. Um, so coming in, that's much more seen as like, um, I wouldn't say, I don't want to say parental, but that can be a hazard. Uh, but it is like a, a taking care of and making sure that employees have access to resources to look after ourselves. And that's not quite the same as saying when you sign your contract of employment with us, we appreciate we could be putting you in, we could be asking you to be in potentially in harm's way with what you're doing for us as an actual job role. And then the whole middle bit of that, where the two things cross, is also the fact that workplaces are full of human beings and we human beings are really messy when we get together. And therefore, you know, some of the hazards can be uh, things like lack of inclusion, uh, discrimination, bullying, harassment, stress just high job demands. So there's kind of the, there's the looking after, equipping us to look after ourselves. There's the recognizing things go wrong at work. But I guess the area I've been more heavily involved in is where job roles themselves have the wording in law that's most important is foreseeable risks. So, you know, if I if I start a job and I'm working with or for you, you two, it's not necessarily foreseeable that one or both of you might, you know, Work, you know, treat me badly or unfairly or put too much work on me. Uh, but, it, but it can happen, so it's something to do. Whereas if I go into a job or I know for a fact I'm going to watch you footage of really awful, awful things. Yeah. And that's that's the world I mean more to say your job role itself can be harmful if there isn't on my edge. And there's luckily. So, so it's completely different worlds needing to collide in a way, really, yeah. that historically have had totally different... Um, driving forces behind them let alone the infrastructure is totally different within businesses yeah yeah it's really interesting it's really interesting. that's probably a whole other podcast episode that exploring yeah. that whole world of psychological health and safety and find it fascinating i thought it was just useful just to give a bit of background in terms of how you came into i guess the last question for me before sorry alita i'll let you ask some questions as well 
um is let's I'd, I'd love to hear about the roles as well so if someone's watching or listening to this and they aspire to be a well-being leader and you had some pretty fancy titles at one point what was it global head of well-being <laughs> these these sorts of roles so if someone's aspiring to that that sort of position um what what are the best bits what are the best bits what can they look forward to i guess right so well uh some of the best bits so yeah very quickly in the job role so bbc hours mental health need yeah. um the only one though so it would have been nice for a team of mental health leads but there was just one uh one physical uh lead uh, in uh, fa- facebook now meta uh global resilience program manager at one of three and i say that because that being called the global resilience team was specifically around the challenges of content moderation mm-hmm. um however there was no distinct well-being team anywhere else so but we were therefore it would be hr working at the general what we would call more the wellness and well-being and we were honing in on equipping the workforce to do a very particular job and tiktok i was the global head of employee well-being so all of it um and that role was brand new because the company was pretty much in rapid hyper growth globalizing out of china at the time um, so every time I turned around, there were about five times more employees than the last time I looked. So really, really fascinating time, which leads me on to the question there would be, I think this is a huge opportunity that's ripe for innovation mm. and um, different ways of thinking and just really, yeah, really rich for complex problem solving. So there's so much in this space that's needed around development. That I think there are huge and huge opportunities. There are things that make that slightly uh, less easy than it might, but that that doesn't mean it's you know we need people who are up for a challenge and uh, yeah. So one of the things is that um, there's a huge increasing appetite from businesses to, to get this right mm-hmm. for really wholesome reasons, and also companies need to protect themselves and their reputation. So like there are lots of different reasons, but certainly. I think that um, one of the things I've seen is senior leaders, including in huge global businesses and really, really senior leaders, finding the world an increasingly challenging place in lots of ways, you know, even when we are in relatively secure employment and have, you know, quite a lot of the things that we would want to have around us. But then the pandemic, which I know we'll probably talk about, threw an awful lot of extra uncertainty. Plus, I guess because the topic of mental health in particular, but broadly health in general, has become more visible or talked about that I have seen more and more leaders really start to get it, that this is so important, not always quite clear which bits or how, or how best to support it, but just that it's really, really important and that it should be something that the HR just go and get on with over there. Yeah. That ability to innovate is really interesting, right? I mean, look, I'm trying to think of an industry. I don't want to offend anyone. (laughs) If you're going in to be a, a finance professional or something, right? You kind of know what the industry looks like and what the roles look like. Sure, they absolutely there is innovation in there. But you're saying that these well-being roles, they're they're almost they're defining themselves and evolving as time goes on. Is that right? Well, I think that the space is ripe for it. It, it could be very easy for people to just keep plodding along, sort of saying this is how we've always done things around here, which we know happens. Um, but I feel like the space. I'm hungry to see a much more diverse 
range of people coming into workplace wellbeing. I have found myself often in a bit of a mind. Well, there's there's a reason about diversity, but I've definitely been a bit of a minority having an unusual background. So I think that it is really important that people don't feel they don't have the right, they haven't come through the right pathway mm. to get there, that there's some fixed idea. It is more often an HR route that brings people mm. into this. And we need that. You know, we need those who really understand HR, the IPHR world and belong to those, you know, big organizations that help them keep current and understand what are the challenges, what, what are people doing. I think the danger is getting so caught up in that that the blinkers come on. And like, for example, it's just seen as that well-being is always about that employee benefits and just enhancing and improving benefits packages rather than recognizing there's a whole load more to be looked at. Um, the, to your point about innovation, there are certain things that are kind of, I don't want to say fixed, there are certain constraints like there are laws in place that have to be understood. Um, mm -hmm. Laws around equality, disparity, but also laws around health and safety. So it's important to understand those, but the ways in which businesses comply with those laws, it as yet is not highly established or regulated. So there's a huge opportunity for people to come in and say, you know, these are what psychological risk assessments look like in these kind of job roles. These are how, these are what good control measures look like that come from evidence base. So I think we need more people with research backgrounds. I think we need more people with learning and development because these, these things are still quite silent inside, particularly in big organizations and getting everyone to talk to each other enough and start, you know, pull things together can be quite hard. So would it, would it be fair to say that having held these roles in significant organizations that it does feel like there's not enough of an established structure for that role and a blueprint and, and I, well, people doing that work across business. Yeah. Well, so I'd say two things either. Yeah. It's not really established and well understood. And there's just an awful lot of work to get seen. Yeah, and, and, and to be able to talk about it, or it's been really well established, but in a really narrow way, mm -hmm. it's quite hard to get people to take a step back. And it's almost like it's a given, oh, we, we just figured well-being, we thought it's benefits packages, so we just did it, and this is who runs it. And not wanting to upset anyone because everyone's role is important, but be a bit more clear about who should be responsible and accountable for which aspects of well-being in a business. And... Um, Again, guarding against the idea that someone like me can be maybe sort of parachuted in and that I'll magically quietly just do well-being at everyone, you know, from the sidelines and, you know, rather than that it's everyone I may have to lead, I may be responsible, you know, looking at what I'm responsible and accountable for, yes, you know, designing a strategy and making sure I bring all the right people in, um, but really making sure I have got the resource and able to attention and time because one of the biggest challenges in the time at poor world we live in in big companies more so um yeah it is it's perhaps being slightly swept aside and there be an assumption that we're going to just do it when actually there isn't there isn't the resource the agency and the influence in place so getting that investment across the business can be hard and because humans are humans and i said about being messy is there can be a bit of wrangling for ownership of things yeah um some of the times that's, a, in my view is, that's a little bit of a flaw sometimes in how some of the review processes are done in that they can encourage people to um, hold on tight to things and be, I wouldn't say even competitive, but sort of want to say that one's mine, by the way, you know, you can help me with it, but I'm, I'm claiming that one as my piece of work. And it can cause people to get into, oh, I've seen it and lived it 
causing friction when people are feeling like they're not able just to be in running things collaboratively. Um, it can get into slight wrangling match, but I do think some of those things are being noticed and worked on because like anything new, you bring in new systems and they're brilliant in one way. And then there are these kind of unintended consequences. So I think these are all things that are ripe, as I said, about exciting challenges to kind of re just be very agile about and say, oh, okay, you know, how do we now address the patterns and unexpected problem come out of some of how we do things without just starting from scratch all over again? Yeah. Well, one of the things we wanted to ask about it with regards to the role of that well-being leader is like what what are the skills that need to be in there? I mean, you've got this kind of such rich, amazing um, experience of work. And I just find it fascinating that it actually comes from such an acute place of being in the military because that's like, the you know, just generally, that's kind of one of the most um, clear places where you are may, would be perhaps think, right, okay, well, there's trauma and deep physical and emotional mental health challenges in that type of work, whatever role you work in. And then you've ended up coming through this journey of bringing that and translating that into what is more just like normal corporate worlds. Um, but that's that's what you've had to experience to be able to do that thinking on behalf of co the corporate world, which is just, you know, it says something in itself, doesn't it? Um, but I think probably some of our listeners are coming from lots of different places. Yeah. Their expertise, as, as you've sort of talked about with these silos. Um, and some of these skills are necessary. Probably lots of people are experiencing imposter syndrome or thinking that they need to go off and do another master's. <laughs> um, like what, what do you think maybe more from a soft, perhaps a more useful question is like, what are the soft skills? What are the um, things that people need to be able to pass? Not always necessarily deliver because maybe they can seek more support of an, of new skills, but what are the soft skills that people need to be able to navigate this and make some progress? Yeah, I think that is a good question. Um, and, and you know, there's a bit of a debate there about some of the things, the skills we can learn, some of the things that we maybe need to be aware that we have or we don't have to avoid. Yeah. I mentioned that. I know that I'm patenting. There are different ways to say this, but a very divergent thing called patenting. I just, my brain feels like it throws out rent and sees things all connected up. You can almost just see it. And on the one hand, I think that is needed because I can see how we've got all these, we've got learning and development, diversity and inclusion, health and safety, uh, it, everything's all wherever it is. And it is easier and neater to be in our functional areas and feel a little bit safe and contained that we don't have to look outside of it. And as long as we're doing our bit, everyone else will do theirs. I think looking cross-functionally like that, being able to see things like that is really, really important. The caveat to that though, is if I was let loose, just me like that, it would get wider and wider and wider and I would dip into a puff of smoke basically because uh, my, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not good at bringing it back in. But where I've been really blessed is having people with like, a complementary skill set, like really skilled program managers who are willing to sit and extract some of what my head's busy formulating and, and turn it into things that are really tangible and concrete in collaboration. So I think that the, so which leads me on to saying having a, a, an ability to kind of see things strategically is really important. It's also really important to be willing to get right out of whatever you think your comfort zone is and recognize what that is in the first place and go wherever I think I know 
is to be really curious and find out, you know, from others who see things very differently and therefore link to that. If the wellbeing teams I've been on have worked really well is where we've deliberately made sure we are diverse, not just, I don't mean your classic diversity categories, but also ways of thinking. Like I mentioned that the skill sets to say, it's actually much harder to work with people who think totally differently, mm-hmm. but it does bring about far better results because we can challenge each other and recognize the respective strengths. But, you know, also you do get based up a little bit with your limitations, if that makes sense. But being in places where that's celebrated, that you can be on a bit of a journey and having a very open mind. But there's a lot of unlearning to do, I think. I think there's as much unlearning to do as there is learning. And that's my challenge maybe to some of the people who've come through a more um, conventional route mm-hmm. and feel like, right, I've come, you know, I've come through a route and I want to go apply everything I've learned. And that includes people who've gone and done master's degrees. And there is loads of loads of really, really good received wisdom out there. And so I'm not suggesting we just scrap it all and reinvent the wheel. But I think that there's a caution in coming in and sort of saying, right, there are really established ways. You just have to apply what we've learned and it'll all be well. I think it's a mixture of taking all that evidence and all those tools, but being quite creative with it as well. Because you mentioned the military and some people kind of, I think, don't maybe understand some of how the military works in that people will say to me, and I don't know how you dealt with the whole being in a hierarchy and being told what to do all the time. But the point of officer training is particularly is that we were hired for people who were willing to think for ourselves while knowing when to follow the rules and when under extre- sometimes extreme conditions to be able to keep the rules out of window and just say, right now, these rules are not going to keep people alive. They're not going to keep people safe. And we know where they are in the guide rail. But being able to move around between what's established and what a context requires is another skill. I think quite a, th- a flexibility of thinking. Yeah. And I didn't know how helpful that was to me until years later. Yeah. Did you feel like you've been able to influence some of these organizations that you've been to along the way with that type of thinking? Yes. In that, I guess, another thing the military did for me is I used to be terrified of speaking out, even in the classroom, you know, from a hand up. I was really shy. And I got made to be willing to stand up, put myself out there, speak with confidence, lots of things that I really wouldn't have found came easy to me. So again, when people say to me, oh, it's okay for you because you can speak up and speak out and you've got this confidence, is to say, yeah, sure, it's been a hard one. So I wouldn't want anyone out there to think, oh, I'm not like that because um, it's taken years and years and I'm like I have a huge imposter syndrome. I have days when I didn't speak and should have. I have days when I did speak absolutely shouldn't have. But I do think that um, another of the skills is um, this gets seen as a soft and fluffy thing, and you'll know exactly what I mean when I say it, but empathy. Mm-hmm. And it isn't all empathy in the sense of compassion, like understanding that people have difficulties and, and caring enough to want to support them. I also mean empathy in everyone's job is more stressful for the most part than it's ever been and everyone defaults when we're stressed to just probably what we know and what we need to have happen and it needs to hurry up and happen yesterday and when i'm working with broad ranges of leaders and stakeholders and i really need them to kind of understand meeting them where they are is one of the most important things and i've sometimes got it very very wrong but when i've got it right i've really noticed i absolutely you know that understanding that um where they're coming, but that usually things are getting stuck just because everyone is moving at a million miles an hour and everyone is juggling probably too many things most of the time and realizing what 
how, how do I, how does this, how do I get this to ring true for this person and see how they might be able to, um, you know, have a positive, positive influence. So those, are, we, it can get a bit tired talking about influencing skills and good communication skills, but a lot of it is actually the stuff that gets seen as fluffy. Mm. Put yourself in someone else's shoes for a bit, even when you really can't imagine being them for a split session. And it also sounds like it could be the role itself could thrive best from being the connector between these more formal parts of the business that are bringing the health and safety or um, the psychological safety or the, the more traditional elements of it. Perhaps this role would be best um, thought of almost a bit like, you know, like an MDT in a medical setting or something where you're kind of bringing together all of those people in your role. I think that's a key point, and it goes back to something I mentioned earlier about the, the dangers of seeing well-being as an add-on. You know, including yeah. benefits packages there are are still add-ons, and they take away from looking at what is going on in the workplace, but also not just how people are treating each other, but also how the organisation is operating. Yeah. As in, you know, is it help? Is it as healthy as it could be? And so, you know, occupational psychologists know that will they talk about interventions at work, primary, secondary, tertiary, and just to be technical for a minute. Um, primary is looking at the root cause of, of things, how they're impacting on people. Um, and in risk assessment, similarly, it would be the absolute root cause of the risk. Secondary is training people and equipping them. And there's a huge emphasis on giving stress management training, resilience training, and it's all good stuff. All of it needs to be there to make sure employees are as well equipped and empowered as possible to take care of ourselves and each other. Tertiary is offering support and treatment for when things aren't so great, but I noticed that a lot, and most of the root cause, it wouldn't be my expertise, you know. So to give an example, if I'm working with content moderators, the way that work arrives through a tech platform in front of those workers is not, so I can have, I can make recommendations and I can have kind of opinions about things, but I don't have the expertise to do anything about the platform that they work on. That is a very tech job and there are some people who are brilliant at it. A lot of the training, learning and development have all the infrastructure and we've already said benefits. So I think absolutely what you said is a high valid point is that you are, a, a, you know, a conduct, an internal, you know, conductor offering. And the reason that worked well, and I mentioned root cause, is that so often businesses have got way more in place than they think they have um, by, by means of channels and, and procedures and um, just, just infrastructure in general. Like, for example, you've got, you know, brilliant. When I was at TikTok, I was lucky to work with the most fantastic learning and development team. And they were expanding all the time, but they'd got so much expertise around designing, delivering, evaluating, managing big, complex training programs across the organization. They didn't have my subject matter expertise, but pretty much everything else. So if I had been sitting there as head of wellbeing saying, well, I've got to now create all of this stuff, I would have crumbled. So being able to go and say, well, what across the organization? So I absolutely, I think that's part of that pattern thinking that a wellbeing lead can look and say, it might not be immediately obvious, but there'll be so much to, I, I try and avoid buzzwords where possible, but leverage, never mm-hmm. much to leverage um, in terms of expertise that's already there. And what I've found is more often than not, despite everyone being, you know, under a lot of pressure and working very fast is we all love to feel valued and we all love to feel like, you know, ag- we have agency and expertise. And what I've found is even when I've gone to really busy teams, you might protect teams working on you know, the design, basically the user experience of employees or learning and development. I can't really think of a time when someone said, no, we can't work with you. 
Mm. We can't, you know, we can't take anything more on. It's people feel really valued for recognizing that what they're bringing because well-being. The other thing to mention, of course, is that one of the challenges I've found is that on the one hand, it's quite right that well-being is everybody's business. Being well at work is about being human and recognizing when we're doing really well and we can support others and recognizing when we're not. However, what doesn't always get recognized in my experience is that running a well-being function or being a well-being professional isn't necessarily the same as having a duty of care as an employee, as a team, as a manager, as a peer. And that gets blurry. So sometimes some of the work I've been doing has been, there have been extra challenges that weren't really necessary because of very enthusiastic people who maybe had their own wellbeing problems or they've got involved with something in the previous business, suddenly taking off with initiatives that unfortunately they don't quite have the right skills or expertise to do. So there's a place for those of us who are professionally qualified there's a place for all those who want to be allies and champions, but I think those roles get blurred more than they should. I I had a question about that because I came across that just the other day, actually, and it's a difficult, I couldn't get my head around it in terms of where I, on which side of the fence I sit here. So one of the things that you're constantly trying to do as a wellbeing leader is get buy-in from the top team, right? You know, you want it to be taken as seriously as possible at a very senior level. Um, but then... Am I right in thinking you could ha- almost have too much enthusiasm by people at those senior level who then try to take over and don't know what they're doing? <laughs> but any level, actually, because in you know in some companies, what one of the things I've seen change over the last few years is that hierarchies are becoming a lot less. I mean, I the idea that we don't have hierarchies is anyone who's got a line manager and any direct reports is in a hierarchy, but we've got more and more matrix type environments set up. And what I've seen in that, and also just very forward-thinking, progressive, particularly in the tech sector, is that early career employees are given huge amounts of agency often and budgets. And and I love it. Like, that is something that overall is brilliant. Mm. However, if managers become a bit too less safe bear, which can happen in a busy world, then you can end up with all sorts of things taking off across the business, somehow being called well-being or to do with mental health. Um, that aren't being overseen properly around um, legal compliance around. So, for example, I've seen stuff where, um, you know, wellbeing initiative started out appropriately just around allyship and um, having people come in as speakers, but then suddenly it's looking at job roles that are potentially hazardous and and but but being run by people who didn't actually know what health and safety law required of them, didn't and, and really stepping into dangerous territory for the company. Generally speaking, when I've had the right conversations with the right people, it's just been a case of some people not knowing what they didn't know. Um, but that does, again, well-being leads sometimes get left. Trying to rein things in and support things where possible and still own the right things and know what we know and have a bit of an idea of knowing what we don't know. And it can be an extra burden sometimes running around after people and saying, love your enthusiasm, but... <laughs> Is it, and you know, don't want to micromanage, but can we just establish some boundaries about what, what, what that is? And one of the reasons for that being an issue, I think, is because the world word well-being is just too huge. Mm-hmm. And being well is just it's everything: how we lead, how we manage, what sector, what you know, whether we're in the right job for us, whether we get on with the people we're with, whether we have our own healthy habits. You know all of this, but it's so huge that I think sometimes it hasn't been. Someone could go into a well-being lead position and in 
you could have five different well-being lead positions in five different companies and find that the people who create the job description and the position have five completely different ideas of what that job is because they're not internal experts hiring in you know they're they're creating something not actually knowing what they're creating so i think and and i know i'm saying a lot there but i think another thing about well-being leads is to be able to go in and um Ask all the right questions on arrival about what the expectation of the role is. And is it the thing you hoped you come coming in or actually during hiring process, it's just as importantly. Yeah. But I think that is that, I mean, that's our sort of motivation in a way behind these conversations is to sort of like hear the experiences, understand what it looks like, what it's looked like for you, Jackie, and, and then for someone else. And then from that, be able to sort of work out more, um, how we can help to shape and steer and people to feel more more informed about what questions to ask because it's also about where that organization's at on their well-being journey on their journey of doing this and supporting their employees because that's another thing isn't it organizations are all at such different points it's not established function in a business so therefore organizations could just be taking their first little step into thinking about some of this stuff and like they might have some of the more formal things in place but um that in itself is part is part of it and um, we did just uh, we were going to get, get on to the industry weren't we in general and i think there was a couple more things matt that we were keen to um you know yeah. get more thoughts on jackie yeah sure so whether you whether you well we've just talked about it's very difficult to pin down well-being about about what it, exactly it means but what do you think's changed over the last decade um has COVID had an impact on any of this, do you think? Or is that a bit of a... Everyone always mentions COVID, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so what's changed? Uh, I mean, so much has changed. It's been such a rapidly evolving field. I think um, from the sectors I've worked in, because I do appreciate that I've ended up in quite particular sectors, and so I won't have that really broad view, but, but I do stay connected by LinkedIn and I read... I guess I've seen it both explode in terms of it's that word's everywhere now. Well-being, wellness is often coming more from the United States. Also, for me, means a slightly different thing. Um, but we just know that well-being wasn't really talked about. It was very much in the domains of HR professionals to you know manage individual cases where someone had a problem. You know, worry about um, occupational health routes, uh, health and safety. We're busy looking after physical stuff. We'd have our ergonomic, you know desk assessments and so on but I think yeah this thing called well-being kind of it has come through HR and and that's where there's huge credit there that you know having good benefits packages was recognized as an important thing to boost you know boost retention get people in the company but also has a helps to create a happy workforce EAPs is something you know if anyone who doesn't know employee assistance programs that aren't only counseling they're often legal advice financial advice, but there is a counseling helpline. But they originally came from the US at a time when um times were tough and that I'll come back to that about COVID, but times were tough for very different reasons. And it was back in the thirties. And um company leaders just recognized that taking extra going a bit extra to look after the fact that employees have lives outside of work and that aren't always going very well and you're creating hardship is it's good for the business. It's good for everybody. So that's where that came from, and they've really, that industry's really exploded. And, and on the one hand, quite rightly, but EAPs are part of employee benefits. And to go back to what I was saying is my expertise is that the increasing focus on how workplaces themselves can be either beneficial or detrimental to our well-being, and then can't rely solely on benefit. 
it's got to also be part of the infrastructure, part of the risk management, part of the way that leadership and management's done. I am seeing that changing, but that is still to me in its infancy, that move from the lens that well-being is about nice to haves and benefits and almost like benign kind of almost parental idea of will be really nice to you just because it's the right thing to do and recognizing that it's hollowed more than that. And that goes back to that, you know, understanding um, different priorities, whether legal, financial, moral. And uh, linked to that, I think there's a way more awareness amongst the workforce of what employers should and could be doing. And I think that links, I'm going to make sure I don't get out of my expertise because I'm not in recruitment, but I talk a lot to people involved in recruitment saying that we're, we are in the middle of a much greater shift towards employees interviewing employers as much as the other way around. And that actually part of that, the bit that I do know more about is asking those tough questions about how their well, you know, how is my well-being going to be taken care of and you know, what can I be looking for around resource? And that's increasing. Um, so having a very self-aware, a more self-aware workforce and, and especially in terms of rights, understanding the laws. Um, I have seen still a lot of emphasis I mentioned on the secondary and tertiary and, and still a huge emphasis on let's train our workforce to be more resilient. Mm-hmm. And that's great. Those, we can all learn the skills of resilient. I'm pleased with the opportunities I've had to learn skills, um, but not in the absence of looking at the core root cause of where a toxic culture or just excessive demands over a long period of time. So there's definitely, definitely more understanding. Something I mentioned earlier, I think senior leaders, the more leaders have learned that a bit more open-heartedness and transparency about being human, um, if they speak up and say things haven't always been rosy in a way that we didn't used to have that culture, it was leaders had to be up on a pedestal. That's brought benefits in the sense that it's helped people get real. I do think it's caused extra challenges though because now there is everyone's eyes are wide open in a way that they weren't before so there's more there's more to do but that's why we want more well-being needs and um the pandemic yeah i mean so much being written about that and talks about that um it's that thing isn't it where it, it's been horrendous for some people it's been life-changingly good for other people and it's been everything in between um i guess from a working has had huge um, ripple effects. Is not covering it. And um, I work a lot in the diversity and inclusion space as well, particularly neurodiversity. And now I know in the networks I belong to that for some people, remote working has been utterly life changing in terms of how they are able to engage with work. And um, for others, the isolation has been horrendous and terrible. And people have you know you know and uh, and there's lots of debate about different job, different jobs and what jobs if any can be fully remote and which ones actually can't and I, you, you'll know all about that but that's opened up such a huge amount but it's also opened up a lot around how people need and manage i guess mm. it's um called out a few a few extra bits of micromanagement around the place that maybe haven't been useful yeah yeah the interesting thing will be time horizons won't it because i mean i've moaned probably to both of you at some point about this that i stood in conferences 12 15 years ago where well-being was on the cusp of a big you know step change and um the world of work's going to change and we don't always sometimes i don't feel like we're quite there still yet um 15 years on so i think that the pandemic has given it a massive kick up the backside right in terms of people taking this stuff seriously but the the question is how long does it take until it's fully integrated in a way in which 
we need it to be, um, yeah. essentially, those roles. And also still battling with it. I think there's still a lot of battling and challenge, like the dust is yeah. settling still, isn't it? Yeah, and as I said, seeing it being HR only as the remit, but also an add-on that somebody could come in and work behind the scenes and just magically do well-being at everybody and not invited. That actually is hugely uh, multi-stakeholder again. And the other thing I've seen change, you know, buzzwords do come and go. It was all about stress management for a few years, and then it was all about resilience. It was a bad thing, and now, you know, now it's both. What what counts to me is what's behind all of that. But if if workplaces are requesting that their employees become endlessly more resilient, there's a tip, there's a point at which that that's gone as far as it can go, and it has to be a case of like, are we being realistic about what we're asking of people? Mm. So I've watched all of that happen. Um, I also think because I've worked, you know. As social media companies have arrived, boomed, and there's this whole brand new thing called content moderation and this idea that, you know, the internet needs to be safe for users. What that's done is, um, on the one hand, it has exposed an awful lot of people to some really the darkest side of humanity repeatedly on their ship. You know, there's been this huge realization that keeping the internet a bit safer, because let's face it, it's only totally possible to do it so far, but that workhorse globally trying to be that first bit like the BBC I said getting all the footage in and um, it's taken a while for everyone to realize quite what toll that can take that just saying that people are going to have resilience training doesn't cut it but what I've seen it do in a positive light is it's and then this is very much the area I work in is it's allowed other industries other sectors to sort of take a step and say do you know I think we've got people probably exposed to things that we could know more about and do more about so ended up working across, you know, frontline healthcare and social work. And that's another one that the pandemic's brought into even more sharp focus that says the tech sector is allowing this to come out, but it's allowed us to go and look in some dark corners we didn't look in before. And instead of just saying, well, we recruit people to be, it's their job, you know, if, if somebody wants to be, a, I don't know, a firefighter or a social worker or a police officer, then that's it. We train them for the job. But to say it doesn't mean that they shouldn't still be and the ability to say the job role is exposing people to things that we shouldn't normally be exposed to that frequently or, you know, or, or just things that are not, it's, it is the darker side of, of life sometimes. Um, and if we want people to do those things, there need to be more understanding of that. Yeah. yeah. Can, I, can I just ask, because I, I found that fascinating about, because that's what we're trying to do, right, Alethea? Part of the working, setting up the working well community is con- connecting those di- people from those different sectors. Because we've had the opportunity to speak to some amazing well-being leaders yourself included jackie um over the years and it's almost you know what could we accelerate the process by connecting those people in the right way a hundred percent and actually some of the jobs i've done um the biggest challenge i guess i'm based has been the isolation of feeling like i know that i know some helpful valuable stuff but i also know that i don't know at all I know I can't do it alone, but I do feel I can make a really positive impact. And then sometimes finding that I'm in an organization where I look around and everyone's racing at 200 miles an hour and I'm having to ask people to slow down five minutes and could they, you know, and the the imposter syndrome can creep in and then the overwhelm and starting to feel that there is so much good that can be done. And, And I'm not always great at managing my own expectations of myself. I want to have it all done, you know, tomorrow. Um, and it takes time, but I think that had I had an opportunity to be part of a network, because I was looking for my own networks, you know, looking for other people on LinkedIn or 
just or trying to connect up internally with people in HR, and that's worked really well to a point. But if I look back now and think, if I'd been part of kind of a network where, with all the right confidentiality in place, um, I could be sharing challenges, but also insights and hearing the other, um, that could have made an enormous difference to my own well-being. Because that's the thing, well-being leads. If we can't look after our own well-being in those jobs, then we're going to struggle to be doing it, championing it for anyone else. Yeah, exactly. It starts at home, doesn't it? And that was going to be my next question, actually. So you have mentioned LinkedIn a couple of times and that that's a place that you've gone to to find connection and, and, and community. Um, what what other resources and things have, have been useful over the years and um, what would you recommend to people? Um, yeah, I find LinkedIn a double-edged sword in that <laughs> if ever we want to compare ourselves to people and then go down a dark hole, there's a plenty to do, right? But um, so... However, uh, again, it's about self-awareness. There are days when going through LinkedIn and watching everyone and saying, all the amazing things they're doing is not what I need at all. <laughs> but other times it's back someone I could be, someone posts something really insightful and I can drop them a note privately. Um, so what else? Well, having a good, I've, I've always, something that I've come and gone with for a while and every time I stopped, it took a while to realize I shouldn't have stopped was having a coach, a reader yeah. coach. Yeah. Um, who doesn't have to be a subject matter expert at all. I probably was not actually, but someone who can, I'm a very verbal thinker. And so left inside my own head, things get worse, not better. You know, they get bigger and more churned up. Um, so, and particularly around sort of problem solving or feelings. And so talking it out with someone who can be just really good at reflecting back what it is, is that's even bothering me and what I need is being worth its weight in platinum, not just gold. So, um, I should have, there's definitely been times when I've dropped the ball on that to my own detriment. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I've done the same. Realised that that's a really important, staple part of just the growth of me and the growth of my job is part of me. So I agree, I agree. Um, maybe that's in the pipeline for working well is some coaching services. <laughs> what do you think, Matt? Definitely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that ability to... Ask one another questions and be really curious and listen to one another. Right, we don't just want it to be people sharing advice. <laughs> well, LinkedIn uh, sometimes feels like it is, but anyway. <laughs> and another thing I think is um, it's a difficult one because many workplaces are pretty relentless. It isn't just perception; like that, we are expected to do an awful lot very, very quickly and have high expectations. But I still think that having um, realistic expectation being kind to ourselves it's that thing start on yourself you can't be kind and understanding of others if you're ruthlessly beating yourself up the whole time for not doing enough mm. so but i do think that's another piece around the um kind of influencing of others that i think then can mixed up in this idea that well-being is either a bit fluffy and or quite simple it's about having the best benefits package or the best eap it can sometimes not to be taken seriously enough in terms of recognizing how complex it is and that it's a rapidly evolving space and that it requires like you said i feel like you're always the conductor of an orchestra uh rather than coming in and establishing another one thing that i see is i've always been asked to establish another pillar within a business when we've got all these other pillars and going no no this is a really cross-functional area actually when done well and it is tapping in but i think that means finding good ways to communicate not just senior leaders, but anyone that you know you need to work with and and to have from very different professional backgrounds. Um, 
it's so important to find, and I don't have all the answers on that, but to find out how, you know, to bring people alongside and recognize that different parts of businesses have very different time scales. So I, I'll bring it to life something quite concrete, that in the world of social media, um, operations is 300 miles an hour all of the time, everything, because policy changes, policy, it, it, it's all about the, these divisions are called trust and safety, it is about keeping users safe, but also in protecting reputation of business, you know, it, and it's just go, 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 go. And sometimes for someone in that, you know, we all get caught by momentum that from something being conceived of to being created, but there'll be huge teams involved will be very, very fast turnaround. And I've been in places home to go. There is absolutely no possibility that I can devise, design, implement, and evaluate an entire global program in the timescales you're thinking, you know, it, it, it can't be done. And Another thing is having really good boundaries and holding your nerve when everyone's really at your heels to say, do it now, do it now, do it yesterday. And going, that just leads to more, well, there'll be lots of burned out well-being leads, but also just not very good programs. Yeah. I think equality suffers. And so I think that is a hard challenge. Yeah. And staying in a positive mindset about that and staying connected to what you want to achieve for the business. Yeah. The irony of that is never, ever lost on us, right? <laughs> this, That's it. But realizing that my view on it, on that thing, can I give it, that well-being for me, when well-being is done really well, the well-being lead actually has true ownership and virtually nothing. If you know what I mean? Mm. It is so much more about bringing people together and being, I mean, I say that when it's ownership that you, you're the linchpin, yeah, yeah. Um, but you may not be a budget holder. And if you are, you know, the people approving budgets may not have a particularly clear understanding, but also you you are requiring to coordinate things that are well established. So I do think those skills around, um, you know, empathy, understanding, patient with self is so important. So we're out, we're out of time, unfortunately, but I guess in, in, oh, 60, in 60 seconds, in 60 seconds because we'd love to what's next what's next for jackie <laughs> and and where can our listeners find you as well uh well if you good old linkedin probably best um i i'm a bit of a crossroad so here's the on with talking to well-being just live stage and something i was going to say earlier and it, it's, it's probably late now but about how well-being changes i've also been delighted as i've gotten a bit older to see topics come in like age menopause women's health all kinds of things that I wouldn't have ever thought would be talked about like this. I echo you though, Matt, I did hear menopause being talked about at a big wellbeing conference probably at least a decade ago. It's all been a bit slow burning, but we're getting there. Uh, that's, I don't mind saying that's relevant to me because that's the stage I'm at in life and it does influence what I do, how I do it, how much I drive myself or I don't. Um, I am personally increasingly working in the diversity, inclusion and belonging space, which is another of these areas that needs to be brought in. Um, every time I've been in a well-being role, I have worked as closely as I'm able with, along with learning and development, also with people who are working in diversity, inclusion, and belonging, because let's face it, not belonging at work. If you perceive yourself not to belong at work, that's got to be one of the most detrimental things to anyone's well-being, particularly psychologically. So I'm looking at a whole bunch of options from next year onwards at the moment, but certainly more around belonging. Exciting. Inclusion. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Perfect. Well, great, great place to finish because, you know, 
with the community we're trying to create a sense of belonging right we'd love you to be a part of that as well so hopefully this isn't the last time we speak to you <laughs> and our audience hear from you um try to involve you as much as we possibly can but uh, yeah thank you so much from the both of us thanks for making the time today and uh great speaking to you really appreciate it jackie thank you no worries thank you